welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast, a podcast for farmers and ranchers ready to shift for a stronger future. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful are not. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, you'll hear how producers of all sizes and practices are moving mountains for things they believe in, all in the name of an industry that keeps growing and innovating for a stronger food system and stronger farm families. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to discuss where producers are finding success, challenging the status quo, striving for better, and keeping our heritage alive, all while producing the food we depend on. Welcome back to Farming on Purpose. Today, I'm here with Gabe Spurgeon of South Baldwin Farms, which is, as the name describes, south of Baldwin City, Kansas. And on South Baldwin Farms, they grow peaches and apples and blackberries and pumpkins, and I think a few other things as well. But Gabe, you can tell me what I missed, Um, which is a little bit unique for Kansas that you guys are a fruit farm. And then you also have some very unique growing techniques to Kansas as related to fruit growing. Um, So you have a very good background story. I want to talk about the summers you grew up working on a peach orchard and kind of what brought you to where you are now. So help me fill in the gaps for listeners of what brought you to peaches and where you guys are at, what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so it, it is an interesting story. Um, and it, it always culminates in the same, uh, joke that I had a, a brain fart or whatever and decided to work twice as hard for half the money. So I, uh, yeah, I, I did start working in a peach orchard when I was 13 years old, uh, in Stockton, Missouri, which is my, what I call my hometown. We moved a couple times, but I uh, spent most of my my youth in Stockton, Missouri, and they had nine, 10 acres of peaches. And I was one of the summer help that, uh, we come in and help harvest and sort. And, um, they had a decent sized garden. So we'd have to pick green beans or tomatoes or something like that. Sometimes, um, I actually wound up doing that for seven summers growing up. So from, uh, late middle school, to, uh, I think after my freshman year of college was the last summer that I worked for them, uh, until I had my first, uh, summer where I spent that as, uh, an engineering intern. Um, so, uh, I did really enjoy that. I enjoy manual labor. I think some people are just programmed in different ways. And, uh, so I graduated college and some careers seem really, really attractive on paper or different on, on paper or, or at a uh, career fair. <laughs> and I did enjoy being an engineer. I really did. But there are so many aspects of engineering that really took me off guard on how much, um, how much you actually get to be an engineer and how much you are doing documentation and meetings. And, uh, so I was an engineer for eight years and I was just really getting restless sitting at a desk. And my father-in-law had, uh, I think he had 320 acres at that time. Um, and he just mostly did hay 
And a long story short, um, things had changed over time. And pretty much all he did was hay, uh, had a lot of broom fields and uh, did hay to just to keep them clean and utilize the land. And I said, hey, you mind if I plant just a couple of acres of peaches that I got to get away from a desk? Um, and one thing led to another. I can't tell you exactly how we got from A to B. Uh, I'll be real honest. Uh, I know at one point I made a passing comment about how, you know, I, I think I really would enjoy farming for a living and got to the point where he said, well, if you want to, uh, you can be an employee and work here and, and farm for a living. And, and so that's kind of how we went. And, uh, we said, okay, this 10 acres is going to be the orchard, half peaches, half apples. Well, we've got all this space. Let's go ahead and put the apples over there and the peaches over here. So if we want to expand one, we can do that easier. Well, we might as well fill all that space up. Right. So now we've got 35 acres total. And, uh, then, you know, it's, it's the farmer's flight. So. Uh, well, I've got so many acres, I need to get a bigger planter so I get it done. Well, now I need more acres to get to justify that bigger planter. Well, now I need a bigger combine because I got more acres and I got to get harvested. So that's kind of this, the loop we got ourselves in a little bit. We had so many acres that we had to make a packing facility to deal with the post-harvest of the fruit and storage. And that's expensive. And now we need more fruit to pay for the pack house. And so we planted another, uh, about 37, 38 acres, uh, all apples. Um, and fortunate, we were very fortunate that we've got water and we've got space and, um, it is very capital intensive to get started. And fortunately, um, we've got that, uh, being a, I'm a first generation farmer. My father-in-law, Dave is not, um, his dad was a dairy farmer. He grew up on a dairy farm and then he was an engineer for, uh, many years. Uh, he's since retired and now has, you know, at the time it was a hobby farm. Now it's grown far beyond what could be a hobby farm, uh, unless you're Bill Gates or something like that. But, um, so yeah, that's, I guess a, uh, the last 15 years condensed into three or four minutes there. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, a lot of snowballing happening there. And I think everybody yeah. can relate to your um, analogy of the equipment versus how much you're running through the equipment and trying to make those numbers make sense. Yes. yes. Yeah. How did your um, wife feel when you decided to step away from engineering and become a farmer for full time? <laughs> Yeah. What, so it, it was able, you know, that's a benefit of being an employee is I, I do have some income assurance. Um, and so that made it a lot easier to jump over to farming. She has, uh, been able to stay home with our kids, uh, since our first one was born. So, uh, she hasn't had the out of the home or off farm job since, uh, you know, 2012. Um, but she does keep the books for the farm now. Uh, actually, she's done that since like 2015 or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's depends on the time of year, anywhere from five to 20 hours a week of work. Uh, she'll help in the store sometimes and events we have on the farm, like the Combat Valley Farm Tour. Um, so she's not really interested in farming. Um, 
And she's been upfront and honest about that the whole time. She's like, I'll support you all day long, Gabe, but I don't really expect me to get out there and be harvesting or anything like that. Um, that's just not what she wants to do. And she's done a fantastic job raising our kids. And she has had to deal with um, me having some seasonally very long hours. And uh, try as I might, there's definitely weeks where I'm somewhat of an absentee parent. Um, which is a, a struggle for a lot of people I know. So um, she's done a great job picking up the slack on the parenting side. We've got three kids um, ranging from five to 10 and he'll turn 11 in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, so uh, yeah, so she, she, she's been involved, but more on the office and retail side um, than the actual farming side of things. Yeah, I think it's interesting how that dynamic works differently for different people. A lot of people, I feel like they think that it's kind of like you're married to the farmer, you're married to the farm, um, which is your is a little different in your guys's case. Um, but those roles can really look like whatever you want them to. I think, and it, I think you guys have sounds like done a really good job of making sure people are doing what they want to do versus what they don't want to do. Yeah. It, it really does make a big difference. Um, and it's something just in our marriage that my wife and I have fortunately been relatively good about is just being really upfront about things. And I, I got to give her from day one, she was like, if this is what you enjoy, go do it. But don't expect me to be any more active in your day-to-day -day doings than I am in your engineering job, because it's just not what I want to do any more than I want to be an engineer. So... <laughs> I'm so glad you could join us today. You can support the mission of the Farming on Purpose podcast and be part of the tribe dedicated to building ag legacies at farmingonpurpose.com shop. You'll find apparel, office supplies, stickers, planners, and more, all inspired by the people living out ag legacies every day. Well, um, speaking of how you guys have been upfront about what people's roles look like, what does your day-to-day -day role look like around the farm? seasonally or what's what's kind of your average list of things that you do on a day yeah i i actually get this question a lot especially this time you where people are like what do you even do right now it's like oh my gosh well for one i only work like 40 hours a week maybe 50 so that's nice but uh so this time of year you know it's a lot of equipment maintenance um and uh doing some taking care of fields and fences. And even though we don't have livestock, we still have, uh, a very large, uh, deer exclusion fence to, or our, um, to protect our trees from deer, they'll do a lot of damage. Um, so, you know, we, we've got all the infrastructure projects like that. We've got a large, uh, involved irrigation system. Um, and I do a lot of marketing in the winter as well, go out and, and meet with, customers existing and potential customers and just talk about the upcoming year and the past year and what we can do better and what might be coming that they could be excited about during the season. Um, you know, I'm so inundated with what is happening that day, that week that I can't, I can't hardly do anything thinking forward. Um, you know, so I can't really do customer relationships in August, whenever we've got peaches and apples and blackberries all at the same time, 
uh, I'm more involved in the harvest and the, and the retail store. And there's always something that breaks. So, you know, getting that back up and going, I, I'm generally the go-to mechanic on a lot of stuff as well as, you know, doing sales and that sort of thing. So fortunately we have a very good support staff. Um, you know, we, we get seasonal workers from Mexico on H2A visas. Um, we've had a woman that's worked year round for us for four or five years, uh, which I, I think that's changing um, due to, you know, family circumstances for her. But, you know, even before her, we had a couple people that worked for us full time year round. So um, also in the winter we do pruning. So that's, that's, uh, we start that in February usually. Uh, so my, my workers from Mexico come in February, which you wouldn't really think about uh, fruit farm really going strong in February, but we got about a hundred thousand trees that all get pruned every single year. And so we start that. And then, uh, so yeah, my every day is different. And that's one thing I really, really enjoy. Um, there are days where I never make Definitely it into my not. office. And I think there are the days everyday being different thing is something it. a lot of people so like it's, it's, about it's different every day, which I life. love. And that's, that was one of my difficulties with an office job was um, a little bit of monotony and boredom. So you're not going to get bored on a farm, especially at the inverse farm. Yeah, you wake up and you have to decide what am I going to do today? What is top priority or what does that look like in this season? Is that something that is challenging for you to kind of make the call on what's happening today or you just kind of know? Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Uh, I, I say all the time that I'm trying to fit 10 pounds in a five pound bag every day, you know, um, you really have to prioritize and I am the king of yellow stino pads and almost every day, um, certainly every week, I, at the top of a stino pad, I write CDL to do list and I write all the things that, that are on my mind. Uh, one, so that I don't forget them, and two, so I can help prioritize them uh, and make sure they get done. Some things I can delegate, a lot of things I can't. Um, but yeah, I, I have to do a lot of to-do lists and priorities because there is no shortage of things that I've put off for three years just because it could never make it to the top of the list. Um, there's only so many hours in a day. So uh, yeah, it's it that is, it is a little bit stressful. You're right. Um, even in the off season when things are more relaxed right now, um, just this morning, I, I'm thinking about, I've got a guy coming to do lime in a field where I've, that I just acquired and I, I need to go ahead and finish ripping out some of the scrub brush that's kind of grown up because it hasn't been well-maintained for a little while. So I got to get that out of there. I got to get it out field so that he can bring lime, but I also got to get the bowl bait spread because the bowls come in and do a lot of damage in the orchard. I got to get that spread. So it's there for a week or two before there's potential rain. You know, I got a good 10 day forecast. So all this is going through my mind, but I'm laying in my bed at six 30 this morning going, well, I have to work on the field. So I guess the bowl baits tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind of constant decision-making can be, overwhelming it's an exciting part that you get to control it but at the same time i think that's 
we, you know, we give farmers a stereotype a lot of time of like, well, they don't, they wait till the last minute to make decisions or they just put off decisions. And it's like, well, actually you're making decisions every day, all the time. And so it's exhausting to make yeah. even more decisions. <laughs> yeah. It's very true. It is exhausting. Yeah. yeah. You talked a little bit about your, um, the H2A labor program. Is that something you guys have always done or how does that work for you guys? Is that something you've um, had a good experience with? We've had a very good experience with the H2A program. Um, we started out using entirely domestic labor and we bounced around on different things. But it's just a challenging industry to use domestic labor in for multiple reasons. Um, we all, everybody's aware that there's a little bit of a blue collar shortage, whether you want to talk about construction industry or manufacturing or farming, um, it, there's a labor shortage in those sectors. So we, we deal with that. But the biggest thing for us is the seasonality of it. So, you know, if you get a good employee and try and lay them off for four months every year, um, they're not coming back. And so you're constantly retraining people every year. So we tried, you know, high school kids, college kids, just, you know, domestic people employing them and, uh, not just kids and it just never worked out. Um, you know, we've had a couple people, like I said, full-time year round, but we can only support, you know, one person, um, year round. And honestly, for a couple months around, you know, December, January, we give them a lot of time off. If you want to take a vacation, that's the time. Not July. <laughs> we don't give beach vacations. We take snow vacations. Oh, um, but then we we were a little bit tentative, but we just kind of got backed into a corner where it's like we got to get stuff done, and we can't get the people to do it. And we have a good friend um, in Central Kansas um, that has used H2, the H two A program for years, and we kind of reached out to him, and and he gave us a little confidence and some resources to get started, and. Um, I knew a little bit of Spanish. I had a fantastic Spanish teacher in high school, uh, and then took another year in college, but that had been a decade prior. And so I refreshed my Spanish as best I could. But at this point, most of the Spanish I know is just from working with my guys. And, uh, I say that my, my on-farm fluency is pretty good. You take me off the farm, but I just have no vocabulary. <laughs> so uh all my spanish that i know seems to have happened here but um they're great people uh every single person we've employed has come back every year uh and you know we add uh as as we're growing we've added people so last year we had six um the year before that we started with four and added two in the middle of the year um next year we're gonna start with six and we're gonna add three in the middle of the year so we'll be up to nine um, and I do anticipate that number going up, uh, as we get a little bit more fruit over the next three years or so, you know, one of the best things that, that one, they're, they're great people. I, I've said that multiple times already. They're great people. They really are. Um, they, they feel like brothers to me. Um, but also they're great employees. They're here for one reason. That's to make money to better their family at home. And. So we work six days a week, pretty much every week. 
And there's a time of the year where we'll, it's always optional on Sundays, always optional. Um, I've never had someone opt out and I always make it very clear, guys, if you're tired, take a day. It's fine. Okay. Never had a guy take a day off. I've had one guy sick one day in four, five, I can't remember now, four or five years to be using the program. I've had one guy sick for one day. I've had two guys that I've sent home because I'm like, you can't work at a, <laughs> you can't work with food right now, guys. You're sick. Go home. Um, so they want to work. They want to be here. They don't have weddings. They don't have, you know, that sort of thing that they miss for. So that's a huge upside. Definitely. When, how exactly do you, does that program work? Do you just, um, submit that you have openings to the program and they source them to send to you? Or do you get any say about that? Yeah. So, um, I know, I don't know, 80, 90% of exactly how that works because my father-in-law has always dealt with that, but I'm always kind of on the fringe of it. Um, so, uh, one reason I'm always involved is because he doesn't speak Spanish at all, but, um, so we have to apply every single year um, and we go through the application process. There are many checkpoints along that. We use a contractor to do all of the paperwork because there are so many details in the clerical work that I would rather have someone that that's their job. You know, one of the difficult things in farming, it's a small tangent, is you have to be an expert in so many things. I, you know, I work with the FDA, the EPA, the KDA, the USDA. I mean, there's so many things, so much regulation, especially around food that it's nice to have this one thing I don't have to be an expert on. Uh, and so we're able to contract that out for a very reasonable price and have good confidence, uh, in the contractors that handle our paperwork with Homeland security background checks and everything. Uh, we can opt to use a recruiter and have the recruiter just send us people that we don't know anything about. Um, the first year, um, our friend in central Kansas was able to connect us with three people, um, that were essentially just family of employees that he had. Uh, you know, if you have someone that's a good employee, their brother's probably a good employee too, you know, I raised in a similar way. And so, um, that's kind of how we gone about our employees whenever we add them uh we say guys i need two more for this year uh jose and Philoana, i want each of you to give me one person and we try and spread it out um on you know and, and we've done the same thing for two other friends that have started on the h2a program where i say okay well i'll ask my guys for for a few names and phone numbers and get you connected and that's how we that's how we uh add people is is through family and friends of our existing employees um so it, they have to go through a background screening every single year even though you know one of our guys has been in the united states on an h2a visa every year for like 18 years now um he still has to have the exact same background check every year they have an in-person interview uh in mexico at the consulate um and then once they get their visa they're on a bus up here we have to house them uh, that's one of the biggest hurdles for people in, in the H2A program. Uh, I've had conversations with a few people, uh, where they've said, you know, well, you know, it's a cheap way out. No, it's, it's very, very expensive. Actually. Um, we have a mandated minimum wage that 
Uh, I don't, I think last year it was $17 and something. Um, so there's a mandated minimum wage that's different for every state. I don't really understand exactly how they come up with that number. It has gone up significantly every year. Um, and yet we maintain the federal minimum wage at seven, whatever it is, which that's a whole other soapbox I could stand on. But, um, so it's not cheap. We provide housing. We have to pay everything for that housing. We have to provide transportation and pay everything for that transportation. We have to pay their way to and from Mexico. We have to pay all of their expenses while they're in Mexico getting those interviews. Um, so it's not cheap. I mean, when they're, when their wage is $17 an hour, it probably costs us mid twenties, um, to do that. But like I said, they, they're fantastic employees. They earn that money. Uh, and then some, and, and I'm very proud of them and, and the work that they do and, and, uh, excited to have them back every year, even though it means a lot more on my plate every day. But, um, yeah, so that's in a nutshell. I mean, it's, it's a great program for seasonal employees. Um, I would love to, to have domestic workers. Um, as much as I love these guys out of Mexico, I would rather not have to pay for housing and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, um, it's been the best solution for us and everybody I know that's been in the program says, you know, we can't be where we are today without this program. That's really cool. I'm glad you shared some of the details of that because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the program and how it works. And the fact that you guys are a success story in a central part of the U.S. versus on the borders or on the coast, it's a lot less common here. So just knowing that we can have success with it here too is really cool. Yeah. And, you know, the after we got involved in the program, I was surprised to find out how many H2A employers there actually are in Kansas. Really? Um, I always thought that it was more of a specialty crop thing because it's hands-on. But um, there's a little bit, not a lot, a little bit in custom harvesting that are employing H2A workers um, and feedlots, uh, especially hogs. Um, there's um, some fairly large employers in Kansas um, using H2A program. My husband has worked um, on feed yards that have had H2A employees, and he's picked up a lot of Spanish, I think similar to you in situational Spanish, though, only related to cows. Um, yeah, right. It's one of those things where it's like, if you're going to be involved in agriculture, I think learning some Spanish at least is very advantageous. We're trying to figure out how to get our in front of our kids more, but it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... I speak Spanish to my kids a little bit. My oldest has started doing Duolingo, um, which is a fantastic tool for beginning in the language, in any language, really. Um, but uh, yeah, they're going to get it whether they like it or not. And if they don't ever work on a farm, they're still probably going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we kind of skimmed past a lot of the growth of the farm and what that all looked like. As you described it, it snowballed, and I'm sure yeah. that felt very hectic and crazy as it happened. Um, but you guys have expanded on the apples front a lot more than the peaches, even though you kind of went to peaches first. Was there a reason for that or kind of what did your decision process look like for where you expanded? Yeah. Um, you know, I tell you what, if I were able to be a peach only orchard, I would probably do that. 
Um, I enjoy growing peaches more. Um, the season is over sooner. Um, there's, there's just a lot of detailed things that personal preference. I like peaches. Um, however, we're pretty far north for growing peaches. Uh, you know, well, they grow peaches up in Michigan, but just exactly where we are, we get some cold fronts moving in, uh, early in the winter sometimes and late in the spring that can do some damage to a peach crop. And so just being the higher risk crop, um, which we have lost a lot of peach crops, um, we chose to not further expand our peach orchard. Um, and so we, we continue to expand apples. We did actually for the first time have a frost significantly impact our apples this year. Um, we had a very late frost, um, I think it was April 22nd, which is the exact date that we lost our crop in, uh, 2021 as well. <laughs> um, and I think it's 2020, 2021 and 2023, April 22nd at a frost every year. So we're going to hold our breath until May every year, I think, but, um, We've tried different things to, to have a peach crop. We have what we call our frost dragon, which is a propane heater that we drag around the orchard. It doesn't heat the orchard. It melts the frost, plays on the freeze thaw cycles to try and maintain a higher temperature on the flower than ambient air. That doesn't really work. Um, we, uh, last year we tried a helicopter. Long story short, that didn't work for us. I think it can work and does work. Um, helicopter pushes down the warm air inversion layer to stir and warm the air in the orchard. Um, unfortunately, we were a degree and a half colder than anybody else I'd talked to on that day. And just some details of exactly how we used the helicopter, I think hurt us as well. So that didn't work. This year we're installing one of our winter projects as we were talking about what do you even do in the winter? Well, we're installing an overhead irrigation system in our peach orchard so that whenever we get a frost, because we've got a good water resource, we will turn on the overhead irrigation. We're going to pump 1300 gallons a minute overhead irrigation, uh, in the orchard. And when the temperature gets to about 35, we'll turn it on and we will turn it off until the temperature is well above freezing in the frost and the, the water's no longer freezing. The idea is to keep that flower, uh, above the important temperature, which is about 28, 29 degrees. They can go below water freezing temperature. So if you form ice on it and you keep that ice at, you know, 31, 32 degrees, then the flower's well insulated and, and, uh, never reaches ambient. So that's kind of the idea behind that. Uh, we would love to grow peaches, but until we prove that we can consistently and successfully financially, we're not going to expand that. So that's the long winded version of why we, why we're growing apples more than the peaches. So. Um, yeah, we did just finish, uh, planting 50 something thousand, almost 60,000 more apple trees, um, to further expand our orchard. One nice thing about apples is they're a little bit more durable and storable, uh, storability. So, uh, whereas a peach, I try and have it out of my hands within two days of harvest if I can. One of our selling points is that we harvest our peaches as ripe as we reasonably can. Uh, whereas a peach that has to be shipped halfway across the country cannot be harvested like that. It just, it, it just can't be durable enough to make that trip. So 
by doing direct deliveries, quick deliveries, um, we can provide what I think is one of the best pizzas you can buy in our area. It makes a huge difference. Um, a lot of people in the central part of the state, I don't think have ever had a fresh peach, um, especially one that's that fresh. I know I didn't ever have one growing up. We would sometimes get peaches um, on the trucks from Colorado, but even those ones right. are not as fresh as the ones you can get from a, a local orchard. And when I um, yeah. first had... I, I worked at Geringer's there, not far from you guys, and had a real fresh peach. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what peaches taste like. This is nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can get spoiled in that way. So a nectarine is actually my favorite piece of fruit, um, which is essentially a fuzzless peach, but it does taste a little bit different. And a nectarine, I think, nectarine, peach, um, blackberry, strawberries. There's some of the fruits that whenever they're really fresh and close to the farm and grown correctly, they are just night and day from, from products that have to be shipped, uh, and have to be more durable. And so nectarines turn red really early, uh, relative to when they're actually ripe. And so I think whenever they're durable and beautiful is a great time to ship it halfway across the country, not necessarily when the flavor's there. Mm -hmm. So I think a nectarine and most people, uh, we've got a cult following at our store. Um, whatever I tell people, you know, how good a nectarine is. And sometimes I'll give one away just to get people to try them. And then next thing you know, that's all they want. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it makes a big difference having it fresh off the tree and actually right. Yeah. Your frost management techniques probably sound a little bizarre to people who are not familiar with fruit farming. Um, I'm curious though, what do you guys use to measure temperature in the orchard or like on the flower? Yeah. So, um, we've got several, um, just outdoor thermometers, digital outdoor thermometers around the farm and we, you know, low spots, uh, cold air settles. Right. So, um, We'll use those around low spots and just drive around and look at them. Uh, I've got a couple of them that are Wi-Fi, but just because of range, I can't necessarily put them everywhere I want to. So the nice thing about those is they give me kind of a sanity check. I don't sleep well whenever it's going to frost. I'll wake up every 30 minutes, every hour, something like that. And I can check those Wi-Fi thermometers and be like, okay, it's 38. It's fine. Go back to sleep. And then wake up 20 minutes later. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there was one day in 20 or one time in 2021 where we frosted two nights in a row and I slept about three or four hours in a 48 hour period. It was rough. But um, so with just regular thermometers around, we're working on creating a um, communication system around our farm to digitize that a little bit better, give ourselves warnings um, and that sort of thing. Um, we also just use a, uh, contactless laser thermometer. So, I mean, when you can get it Home Depot, we, we do have one that costs a little bit more than the, you know, $15 one at Harbor Freight. We've got a, a fairly nice one that we feel is more accurate. We'll actually just use that to check that the surface temperature of the flower um, and make sure that those aren't getting too cold. It's, it's really amazing when that helicopter flew over the first time we went Part of the problem is we started too late. We went from about 27 degrees in some of our cold spots to 34 
after that helicopter flew over twice. It was amazing how much warm air was up there that they pushed down. But uh, anyway, long story short, wound up not working through mostly mistakes of our own. Pretty cool, though, that that's even like a thing that we figured out that you can do. Just drive over with the helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that April 21st date, as it approaches, it probably feels like Friday the 13th or something now after that many years in a row. Yeah, yeah. You know, no matter the forecast, I probably won't sleep that night. This coming. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I don't blame you one bit. Um, well, as you guys have grown and expanded, you mentioned that you have a processing line now. You've added trees multiple times. You've recently added, you said 60 or 70,000 more apple trees. Um, what were some of the big exciting things or big successes during that time of growth versus maybe some of the big challenges or learning opportunities? Yeah. So I kind of start with, um, I like the, the positive spin on the wording, learning opportunities. Um, so some of the learning opportunities we've created for ourselves was, uh, rootstock selection, which is something a little bit unique to, um, tree fruit, um, for people that might be thinking of row crop, when you're thinking about picking your hybrid, it's kind of like that picking, uh, picking your rootstock is very important. So pretty much all tree fruit, well, I'll just say a hundred percent of tree fruit. Uh, in the United States and pretty much throughout the world is grafted. And it's been that way for a lot longer than you might think, a couple of hundred years. Um, so if you plant a seed from a peach or an apple, it is a cross-pollinated seed and it will not be the same as the parent. And a lot of times it's very different uh, to the point where it's just not even a good piece of fruit. So rootstock selection is where you have a rootstock that gives you tree growth characteristics that you want. And then you graft on top of that, the scion wood or the variety. Um, and rootstock selection was so much more important than we could have ever imagined. And we proved that the hard way. So, you know, that was a big learning opportunity for us that every time I get the chance to talk to someone who's wanting to start an orchard, I emphasize so many times, if you only take away one thing, rootstock selection, do not settle. Just because you can get the trees today versus next year, you cannot settle on rootstock selection. Um, it costs us tens of thousands of dollars every year as I look at these little trees that rutted out and didn't grow and produce small fruit because of the rootstock we selected. That said, success was the first time we broke a thousand bushels to the acre uh, on apples. That was so exciting. Um, and that was a couple years ago. And if you look at a lot of the USDA guidelines, this, uh, for like NAP insurance, non, non, uh, non-insured agricultural product is what NAP stands for. Uh, NAP insurance guidelines would tell you, you can't grow a piece of fruit on a tree until it's at least five years old. Well, I did a thousand bushels to the acre, a five year old, and I can do, I've proven I can do, uh, let's see on three year old trees. We've done about 350 bushels, um, you know, on trees that they say can't even produce fruit yet. So, um, those have been some exciting successes. The thousand bushels is, you know, is a great milestone. 1200 is the next one. 1500 is, is Everest, uh, that we intend to climb. So, uh, through a lot of mistakes, rootstock being the biggest one, uh, fertility learning, things like that. Um, we're getting there and, one of the things I'm most excited about on our 
our orchard expansion is that we tiled before we planted. Um, so for someone who's listening may not know, uh, tile helps lower the water table after saturation. It doesn't drain all the water out of the soil. It drains the excess water out of the soil. So if you think of a mud puddle, you're getting rid of the water out of the mud puddle. It's still wet dirt, right? But you're getting rid of the excess water. So it's kind of the same thing. We're getting rid of the saturation. We're reintroducing air into the soil so that the trees can breathe. Um, and you need, you know, they say you need 25% water and 25% air in your soil. 50% is is the, what you think of as the actual dirt. Um, so anyway, um, so we got to tile that field. So now coupled with what I've learned about fertility and rootstock selection and, and how it's tiled, I just feel like we're so much more set up for success in this field. Uh, this was going to be the first year we had some three-year-old trees that were going to produce, uh, what we hope to be a good amount of fruit. Um, like I said, we got frosted out, uh, and that was actually one of the areas that got hit the hardest by the frost, but we're really bullish looking at that field and, and how the trees have grown and, and we're feeling a little more confident. Um, look really excited about that. Um, we're excited about some varieties that we're growing that help us kind of be a niche market. You know, the state of Washington grows a, a lot of the apples in the United States, a lot of the apples in the world. They have the Yakko Valley up there where they can control the climate. It's almost like a manufacturing facility because they can control so much. Uh, relative to water and climate and everything, but, um, they can get an apple to Kansas city cheaper than I can just from economy of scales. So we have to look at marketing and be unique. We, you know, fortunately we've got the local, uh, by local movement. Uh, but beyond that, we're going to have some varieties that ne aren't necessarily, uh, on those huge production scales, you know, Fuji, pink lady, granny Smith, Red Delicious, Honeycrisp, those are all available everywhere, but we're really excited about varieties like Ludacrisp and Evercrisp and Autumn Crisp. And ever since Honeycrisp, we're going to put crisp in the name of every variety, but, um, we're really excited about a lot of varieties that, that we've got that we're going to be able to provide to the Kansas city and Kansas market. Um, starting next year, we're going to have a lot of Autumn Crisp and Ludacrisp and Evercrisp. Um, those three specifically, I'm very excited about. That's awesome. Um, when you guys started out, you know, you mentioned some of your high yields that you've achieved, especially on younger trees. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what allows you to do that and how you are expanding that many trees on the acreage you have? Yeah. So something that's a, a little bit unique to our growing techniques is the high density. What I mean is trees per acre. So traditionally think back to an orchard that was planted back in the seventies, eighties. Um, the, what we're doing is commonplace now, uh, in, in the apple industry, especially, but orchards that were planted decades ago, you're looking at large trees that are going to be, you know, 25, 30 feet tall, and they're going to be spaced out at 16 to 20 feet by 20, 24 feet. So, you know, you're looking at 100, 200 trees per acre. We're as high as 2000 trees per acre on some varieties. So our rows are more like what you might think of as a hedgerow. Um, some people describe it as a two dimensional orchard. 
Um, so our trees are only two or three feet apart. They're dwarf trees on dwarf root stocks. So that's some of the growing, uh, <laughs> our growth opportunity that we had was, uh, you know, what root stock works with our soil, our soil temperatures, um, and just our climate and our techniques, all of that combined, uh, what's the right selection for us. And we've kind of zeroed in on a couple that really work well. So, um, you know, we're, we've kind of backed off a little bit on density. I mentioned we have a lot at 2000 trees per acre. We've backed that off to about 1500. Um, so we, we find that to be kind of a happy medium of upfront capital is a little bit less, but we don't really sacrifice much on yield. Um, kind of a, a joke, but very true statement that we have is we're in the business of growing fruit, not trees. Uh, I don't make any money off of a large tree. I make money off of the fruit that comes from it. So we're very interested in how soon can we grow a piece of fruit. So these dwarf trees have kind of an accelerated life cycle. Uh, we like to plant in the fall. Uh, the best time to plant a tree is November. And so we've got one nursery that works with us on apples and we can plant our apple trees in November. They put out roots over the winter and uh, a lot of those trees in that first year growing on our farm start to bloom and we actually have to pull uh, pull fruit off of those trees and, and not allow them to grow fruit because we need them to actually grow the tree that first year. If they grow well in that first year, we will start to fruit them very small crop, intentionally small crop the second year. Um, so grow year one, fruit year two. Uh, we expect fruit in year three. And we expect full production at year five or six, um, certainly by seven. Depends a little bit on varieties. Some varieties don't grow as vigorous as others. Um, some varieties are a little bit more what we call shy bearing, where they don't produce fruit as early in their life cycle. Um, so that's apples. Peaches, um, we're one of the first in the country, as far as I can tell, um, that have grown peaches on high density in the way that we do. So I have since <laughs> years after we started growing like this, I found out the term for it is called three liter palmette. Um, so we actually take a, a peach tree and if you think about a trident, um, you know, King Trident and the little mermaid had his trident. And so that's what we turn a peach tree into. Um, they're all in a row and we grow three scaffold lens off of one root system and put them all in a row. So again, it's like an edge um, against more upfront capital, but it in peaches, it greatly reduces the harvest labor, the thinning labor, which is actually as big of a labor bill, a bigger labor bill than harvest uh, is thinning and thinning uh, peaches. And so it allows us to mechanize some things too with, um, with pruning. So we actually have a hedge pruner. If you think of like a electric hedge trimmer, um, we have that that looks like two gold posts on either side of the tractor. We drive down and hedge the sides of the trees, um, to get sunlight in inside the tree and low in the tree. And that, you know, I can go through the whole peach orchard in uh, less than a day, you know, five, six hours. And I did probably 20, 25% of our pruning, uh, in that five, six hours. And then we'll have, you know, six or seven of us spend the next three weeks doing the rest of the pruning. 
So uh, we've got some mechanical advantages like that. And people ask me a lot of times, so do you hand pick all of that? Yeah, we, everything is by hand, but we do try and do machine assisted anywhere we can. So something like the hedge trimmer. We also, because of the way that we grow the trees when we harvest, we have a harvest platform. We don't use ladders. Uh, in fact, we only own two orchard ladders and that's just for random tasks. That's not for harvest. Um, our platform has multiple levels that creeps down the row. It holds five bins. So we harvest, harvest apples into bins. We harvest peaches into what we call totes. So, you know, the size of your average Amazon box that holds about 15 pounds of peaches. And those totes are made by the same company as the bins. So they actually nest inside of the bins for easy transport around the farm. Um, but uh, that platform, I've, I've had other growers that are, are struggling to move to platforms, I think is a mental barrier more than a factual barrier. And they'll say, well, when you put everybody together that you're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, meaning the slowest guy in the crew slows down the rest of the crew, but that's not been my experience. Um, my field supervisor is a fantastic employee and he expects the same out of everybody else out there. And so now I've got everybody together where my field supervisor sees exactly how hard they're working. He sees the quality of what they're picking, uh, what they're putting into the basket and he can make corrections. Uh, and you can also balance the platform. So sometimes for whatever reason, um, you know, if we have six guys on the platform, one side might be picking heavier than the other. So we might actually put four guys on one side and two on the other. So, you know, it's, um, it's a huge advantage to us having everybody together. Um, it, it helps too with the transport of fruit around the farm. Um, there's just a whole lot of advantages to this growing technique. It's a, it's a, a holistic thing. I mean, it all works in concert from rootstock selection to our drip line for irrigation to how we harvest, how we prune. Um, it's all a system that honestly, we're still figuring it out. And I think I will be until the day that I no longer farm, but, um, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a steep learning curve <laughs> for the last uh gosh we started planting in 2015 and uh we've had one year since 2015 that we did not plant trees the most we've planted in one year was 22,000 trees and we planted all of those in about seven days building the infrastructure for 22,000 trees also takes a lot more time than planting the trees. So building the trellis system that supports the tree. So dwarf roots, a dwarf root stock has dwarf roots and it can't support the tree itself. So we have a trellis system that supports it. Um, so building all that, putting in the irrigation system, uh, all is far more time than the planting of the tree. I love listening to the behind the scenes things and how you guys are optimizing all the different production pieces. And it's just so interesting to hear your perspective on it and the things you guys are trying and, you know, figuring out that work really well on your farm. I love, I love hearing that part of it. It's so different for everybody, especially if you're comparing, you know, especially crop farming versus real crop or livestock it's very different but it's also different just yeah. farm to farm for specialty crops too very true um 
one of the things that we talked about a little bit already was that your marketing is a big piece of your role in the winter. Um, and you guys do a lot of wholesale production. So what that might look like or sound like to a more traditional farm is the co-op or the sale barn. But what does that look like for you guys? Yeah. You know, for us, if you go to a fruit growing region, um, the farmer doesn't do everything, but we don't have that industry here. We have to be the industry, uh, ourselves. So if you think about being a grain farmer in a region that doesn't grow grain, if you had to store and transport and process all of the grain and then sell it to the bread company or, or what, whatever, you know, the analogy might be, that's kind of where we're at. So we harvest it. Um, you know, someone in a fruit growing region would harvest it into bins, put those bins on semis, go to the pack house and wait for the check to come from the pack house. Kind of like you would take it to a grain elevator. Um, but for us, we don't have a pack house, um, a commercial pack house that buys fruit within, uh, gosh, I don't know, 500, 700 miles. I don't know. Um, so we have our own pack house, which is a huge investment, but that means we also get that piece of the pie financially, right? Um, so we also have cold storage. Um, we've got three 800 square foot rooms, which is extremely small in the industry and is becoming small for us already too. I think, uh, in our near future is a refrigeration building, just the whole building. That's just a refrigerator. Um, but, uh, we, we've, we've, so just to run you through the timeline of the fruit, we'll harvest it. We'll bring it into our pack house. We'll put it in cold storage immediately. We like to get the field heat out as fast as we can, um, for pretty much all fruits. Uh, with the caveat of Honeycrisp. If you ever wonder why Honeycrisp costs more, it's because it's a huge pain in the rear and it yields very poorly. And every every apple grower really does not enjoy growing Honeycrisp. If you wouldn't pay double for it, we wouldn't grow it. So anyway, with the exception of Honeycrisp, everything goes in the cooler immediately after it's harvested. Get the field heat out of it. Uh, Honeycrisp has to be treated differently because Honeycrisp. Um, and then we will pack it. So we put it across our sorting line where everything gets washed, um, dried, and then goes through a visual inspection. So we've got, depending on how fast we're running the sorting line, anywhere from one to four people doing visual inspection, pulling out holes. So, you know, something that potentially rotted in storage, uh, which is a very, very small percentage, but it does happen. Um, and things that are seconds. So generally cosmetic blemishes like a hail damage, a limb rub. So, you know, it grows on a tree and sometimes up against the limb and a limb rub kind of looks like a scab and it's just not going to sell at the grocery store, but they make fantastic cider. So, uh, we'll pull out what we call seconds and put them back into bins and the, uh, number ones then go across, uh, a scale or they get singulated, they go across a scale, the computer tracks every single piece of fruit. We have uh, 11 drops, what I call drops on our packing line, where the fruit uh, goes from the conveyor belt and drops off onto a table. So each one of those tables is a different weight class. 
or it might be three pound poly bags when you buy those, the smaller apples in three pound bags. Um, and we can customize our equipment to put whatever weight class wherever we want and put poly bags wherever we want. Um, and then those get packed into 40 pound cases or in the case of three pound bags, it's actually 12 bags in a case. Um, and then put back on pallets and then we take orders. We, we deliver a lot of our fruit ourselves to a lot of grocery stores and farm stands. Uh, we even do some fundraisers. Um, and so we'll, we deliver a lot of the fruit ourselves in our own refrigerated box trucks. So there's another piece of the supply chain that we have to own. Uh, we also have some larger distributors out of Kansas city that, um, One's a grocery store chain that has their own warehouse. Another one is just a distributor, uh, independent distributor that they come and pick up, um, multiple pallets at a time. So that, that's the story of the number ones and seconds. They go back into bins and we make our own apple cider, which is actually probably, uh, one of our most popular products. Um, we definitely have a following on the apple cider. Um, so I think. The quality has a lot to do with the fact that we do control the whole supply chain. So I know what varieties I have. I know what varieties I have coming and I can be very intentional about the variety mix, the blend of the varieties in the cider. Um, so I think that makes a, a big difference on quality and also the apples don't, they, they don't get very old. Um, you know, I don't get paid for storing apples. So we want to move them as fast as we can. Um, so the freshness, I think also contributes to the, the apple cider quality. So, uh, yeah, in a nutshell, you know, we, we have to be the whole industry. We even retail ourselves. So we go all the way to the end consumer on, you know, it's a small percentage on, on peaches, you know, a, a full crop of peaches will retail 30 plus percent. Uh, blackberries, we try to retail entirely if we can. Uh, we have you pick for the blackberries. Uh, apples is very small though. We we only retail maybe one or two percent of our apples uh, off of our farm. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're primarily like like you mentioned, and, and like I just kind of went through, we're primarily wholesale. So a, another difficulty is, and forgive me because I'm not a, a row crop guy, but you're pretty much guaranteed you can sell your corn. You might not be that happy with the price at the elevator that day, but you can take your truck of beans or corn or whatever to an elevator that's got space and you can sell it. I'm not guaranteed that I'm going to sell my apples. I have to go out and make that sell happen. Um, so that's, there's, uh, being a farmer of any kind, you have to wear a whole lot of hats. Um, I feel like I'm constantly juggling the hats though. So anywhere on, on a given day, I'll be elbow deep in a tractor repair and be on the phone, trying to make a sale at the same time and give an instruction while we're packing. Hey, tell them I just made a sale and don't put stickers on the one thirteens today because they're going to a school. <laughs> so that's the, the specific scenario. I'm yeah. <laughs> So. That's a lot of different hats to wear just on the part that comes after the apples harvested. And then you have all of the ones that lead up to that as well. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've talked some on the podcast before about 
a lot of opportunities to, to diversify farms. There are maybe kids looking to come back to a farm and trying to figure out how to add their own piece to it. Is specialty crops or specifically apples and peaches something that you think is a good opportunity for folks trying to do that? You know, I think that certainly specialty crops in general uh, lend itself to that very well. I know a lot of farms over the, you know, decades, generations have, you know, okay, we're a cattle farm. The kids come back to the farm. Let's grow the row crop side. We've always done 300 acres, but we can build that up to a thousand and now we can support two families. Well, I think you can kind of do the same thing with specialty crops, be it, you know, hoop house tomatoes or, um, you know, say you want to just continue with the, the field mentality that you've got because you're a row crop farm, you can do squash, you can do pumpkins, you know, and you can do almost all of that from a tractor until harvest. Um, you know, green beans, you can do green beans almost entirely from tractor and, and get a small packing line and, um, uh, you know, tree fruit, the one, you know, I think tree fruit can definitely be a great tool of diversification, uh, especially on a smaller scale where you're thinking more like you pick farmer's market, that sort of thing. To scale up, you, like I said, you have to have the packing line, which is, it's just a, it's a very big financial step and commitment. Um, you know, like I said, we're fortunate to, to have that resource, um, to be able to do that. Um, but certainly you could plant. Uh, like I said, the, the orchard that I, that I grew up on, they retailed everything through farmer's markets and their own store. And granted they had a, a 60, 70 year old, um, customer base that they had built up to be able to retail nine or 10 acres of peaches entirely themselves, but it's, it's certainly possible. And, you know, their cooler was one that they bought from a pizza hut that went out of business that was no bigger than well, it's probably half the size of a bedroom. Um, and we ran a lot of peaches through that cooler and it worked really well. So certainly, you know, scale and market and, and that sort of thing, you would have to really start thinking that out. I've had people tell me, well, in our part of Kansas, you know, it's just not a lot of, uh, discretionary income where people can do that. It's, it, it's food. Um, you're not, you're not selling them, uh, garbage. You're selling them food. It's something that people are going to use. Um, so, you know, there is the entertainment value of the U-Pick. You don't have to have bounce pillows and that sort of thing. We don't, we have U-Pick and, and people really do enjoy coming out here because they see a working farm. We're not an ag entertainment farm at all. They see a working farm. They're going to see apples being unloaded while they're out there, um, you know, towards the end of blackberry season, they'll see apples being unloaded. Uh, during pumpkin season, they'll see apples being unloaded. In our farm store, you can look through the window and you can see the packing line running, you know, three or four days a week um, during apple season. So they really enjoy seeing that working farm. So, um, yeah, I, you don't have to have all of the you know, apple cannons and slingshots and those sort of things to actually be of entertainment value and educational value and to help you get the premium dollar. And you don't have to charge more than the grocery store. And most people don't actually, it's kind of a misconception, but, um, we actually sell our fruit the same price or cheaper than most of the grocery stores that buy it from us. So that's interesting because I know in 
beef. A lot of folks that are kind of changing models on how they market their beef are going direct to consumer and they always charge more than the grocery store. But I think it's, it's interesting. Like that's very specific to the product. You don't have to make a blanket statement of like, this is how it has to be. So I'm glad you said that. Um, yeah. Speaking of like families that are trying to come back and diversify and figure out how all of that works, we talked a little bit about what your guys' family dynamic is on the farm. Do you want to talk just a little bit more about that and share what works for you guys and what advice you might have to somebody who's thinking about becoming more involved on their family farm? Working with family is very rewarding and very difficult um, within the same moment. Um, so, um, you know, it's fantastic that I get to see my family all day, every day. And whenever we have a bad day, um, we're going to have dinner together. (laughs) So that can be difficult sometimes too. Um, you don't have the, the separation of relationship or mentality, uh, in the good and the bad. And so, you know, and this is nothing unique to me on, you know, working with family or generation and succession planning and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's been something a little bit difficult. Um, you know, the one piece of advice that I would give is to have good communication, which takes two people. Um, and so you can only control yourself, but have good communication and Try and be clear on intentions. Um, And you don't have to like what the other person has to say. And they don't necessarily have to like what you say, but you do have to say it. Um, You have to communicate with each other and and let each other know your intentions, your hopes, your dreams, and reality. Um, And you have to have a plan. I don't care if generation one is in their fifties and generation two is in their twenties. Obviously in most scenarios, we're not looking at the farm changing hands at that point, but what happens when someone has a heart attack or cancer or a farm accident or debilitating accident, um, what happens to the farm the next day? If only one person can sign the check, how do you, how do you pay a bill the next day? Um, so I would, I would, I think communication and planning is very, very important. And even with all the communication and planning, there's still going to be difficulty, but at least you can maybe be more prepared for it. So I I think that's something that, um, I personally could have benefited from up front was me, myself, knowing a hundred percent what my intentions and hopes and plans were and communicating that with family and, hoping that they could reciprocate. Um, you know, one thing I've heard from, from other people in the younger generation, and I've felt this some myself too, is if something's not going your way, I mean, wh- what is your recourse? What are your choices? I don't own anything. I'm an employee. If I don't like it, what's my choice? Well, it's like being an employee elsewhere. You can look for another job or you can stick around. And that's about the only choice you feel like you have sometimes, whether that's reality or not. You know, it's difficult from both sides because on the other side of the fence, it's, look, I've built this for decades. This is my life that I've built. 
who are you to come in and say that this is the way it should be? Um, so it's, it's difficult from both sides. And that's why I say both sides have to communicate and be honest. And farmers aren't very good at feelings. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, Lexi. We're, <laughs> we're not good at exper- at, uh, at expressing how we feel about something unless we're kind of mad about it. But, um, so, you know, I, I've said a few times that it, not even necessarily germane to this point, but, um, there's facts and there's feelings and they aren't always the same thing. Right. So just because I feel one way, if I were able to present, be presented with some facts from the other side of the table, I might realize, okay, that's, that's how I feel, but that's actually just not the way it is. I, I feel like I don't get to um, decide things here, but the reality is, yeah, I actually do get to decide some things and relative to what I've invested here, I get to decide a whole lot, you know? So um, try and have perspective from the other person, um, you know, whether the, you're the younger generation or the older generation, try and have some understanding and something that I've lobbied for at our farm that, you know, I, I don't mind saying specifically is I want my piece that this is mine to decide what to do with. Um, I don't want to own 5% of everything. I want to own this 5%. That way, if I want to try something, I can just go try it. I can just go do it. Um, you know, it's not always a permission situation. Um, so I would give that piece of advice to whether, you know, I think it's still good to communicate what you're doing. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've actually started, so we've got South Baldwin farms. That's the one that I'm an employee of. That's the one my father-in-law owns. And then I started my own farm, uh, in 2020 called GTO farms. It's my kids initials. And uh, I had cattle for a short time and, uh, and I got a hoop house and last year was the first year I grew some tomatoes in that. And, um, just one week ago, Wednesday of last week, I closed on 60 acres. That's my property now. And so South Baldwin farms is no longer going to grow pumpkins. GTO farms is now going to start growing pumpkins. And so that's my piece. Um, I don't have to necessarily ask for permission, even though I'm using South Baldwin Farms equipment for a lot of it. Um, I, if, you know, if I want to grow this variety, if I want to run this fertility program, if I want to alter the acreage, that's my piece. So that's a long-winded explanation to say, I think, communicate, um, maybe have specific jobs that people do that that's their job. And yes, we're going to communicate and have input but also be careful about stepping on other people's toes. when you said, this is yours, this is your piece and let people make decisions. So. The specifics that you gave there, I think are so helpful because everything that gets talked about in farm succession planning and family dynamics is communicate, communicate, you know, we have to communicate with each other, but what do we communicate about or how do we do that? And I like what you talked about there about giving more information or being presented with facts can change feelings sometimes. And it can just give a person more insight into how things are going. And then what you said about 
I, you don't want to own 5% of everything. You want to own this specific 5% or this piece of land or this, this thing. So you have control over it. That also makes it way easier come transition time. If you're trying to split things up between siblings or family members and stuff too, because there's not the discourse of, well, that's not part of your 5% and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's very true. And yeah, drawing lines is, is impossible to do cleanly, but where you can, I, I, it's good to draw some lines, um, whether it's, you know, I own this or, um, this is my task or, or you're an employee, understand that. And I own all of this. It's good to draw those lines. And and like I, I, I touched on briefly, but I think it's very important. Secession planning never starts too early. And it's not even making the full plan of who's going to own what when it passes on to the next generation. It can just simply be in the event of, you know, an accident or untimely, uh, untimely death or something like that. What happens the next day? How do I pay bills the next day? Mm -hmm. Um, it's just like having a life insurance policy when I'm in my thirties, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's just having a plan. A contingency plan is very yeah, important. Absolutely. Well, I've loved hearing all of the things about what's going on at South Baldwin Farms and what that role looks like for you day to day. I think people can take a lot of really valuable information from that um, in this episode and about apples and peach farming as well that they may not have known before. So thank you for sharing. Um I'm excited to hear about what's next for you. Is there anything that you're really looking forward to here in the next year that people can be watching for? Uh, yeah. So relative to South Baldwin Farms, you know, we're, um, like I said, we're going to have more of some varieties, uh, like Ludacris next year, uh, which is just, I have a love hate relationship with the name of that apple. I think it's ridiculous, but everybody remembers it, especially everybody that's between the age of. 25 and 45, but, um, it's a fantastic apple. So we're really looking forward to having that available on a wholesale scale where you'll see it in a few grocery stores next year. Um, you know, this year at the very end of the season, we introduced a new product to a sparkling cider. And I think we're going to try to expand that a little bit next year. Uh, certainly at least the availability, uh, in our farm store will be better. Um, and you know, for personally, I'm really looking forward to, like I said, the, the 60 acres that I just bought last week. Um, you know, you and I were joking a little bit ago about the honeymoon phase. So I get to be in the honeymoon phase right now. Although it, I feel like the first year expenses are always higher than later because, you know, I'm doing some soil amendments that aren't necessarily annual amendments and things like that, that'll be expensive and, and cleaning up some fence rows and, you know, some of that initial investment stuff. But, um, you know, I don't have to make a payment for every year. So I get to be in that honeymoon phase for a little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, looking forward to, like I said, having my, my own little piece there, um, even though it's on top of, you know, a 70 hour a week job that I've already got, but. <laughs> yeah. When you mentioned at the beginning there, I think, um, only working 40, 50 hours a week, um, in the off season, a lot of folks would be like, that's absurd. And farmers are like, yep, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy working. I really do. 
Um, I don't, I'm really bad at sitting idle. So I, I do enjoy working. I enjoy working 70, 80 hours a week. And, and, uh, the only difficulty is balancing the family life and, mm-hmm. and trying to put in your full self into that too. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing today, Gabe. Um, if people want to learn more about what's going on at South Baldwin Farms or with you, is there any place online they can check up to follow along? Yeah, South Baldwin Farms, uh, we have a Facebook page uh, where we're going to keep that in season. You know, it's going to be up to date on on what you can look for and, and farm store hours and that sort of thing. Um, we have a website. Uh, www.southbaldwin.com and so you can get a lot of information about us there we've uh, kind of been fortunate with some publicity a lot of publicity in 2022 where we were in several uh, magazines and so we've got some links to some articles in uh, on our website uh, as well as other useful information like uh, how to preserve fruit and and ripening schedules because some people uh, don't realize that you know, different varieties ripen at different times. We generally pick a variety for just 10 days. So, you know, start the season with Gala and end it with Fuji. And, um, you know, you can learn some things like that. Um, I have had a, a YouTube channel that I haven't done a whole lot on, but you can see a few videos of the farm on there. It's uh, the Orchard Engineer. Um, so there's a few things on there and I sporadically put a new video on there every now and then, but you can see some very detailed things that I've put on for other growers. And so just, you know, look at what I'm doing today, videos, uh, here and there. So, um, so those are probably the best ways to keep tabs on South Baldwin farms. Very cool. Well, I haven't, hadn't discovered the YouTube channel yet, so I'll have to check that out. We'll have to link it in the show notes for everybody. If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or join the conversation on social media. Do you have a topic you would like to discuss or know someone with a story to share? Apply to be a guest on the podcast at farmingonpurpose.com. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, on your favorite social media platforms for more content by searching for Farming on Purpose. And remember, if you look around your table and aren't inspired by the people there, it's time to find a new seat.